Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Democracy is in decline in the United States of America. While President Trump is hastening that decline, he is neither the initial nor the sole cause of it. Indeed, prior to Trump's election, The Economist, in its Democracy Index, downgraded the USA from full democracy to flawed democracy, citing the concerns that would help give rise to the 45th president. Stretching back to the 18th century, the US has routinely faced democratic crises, but this time may be different. The country now faces the confluence and overlapping of several types of threat, leaving us to ask, can democracy survive in the United States of America? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Dr. Robert C. Lieberman, Krieger Eisenhower Professor of Political Science at the Johns Hopkins University and co-author, along with Dr. Suzanne Mettler, of Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. So let's start here. In the book, you cite four threats to American democracy, political polarization, conflict over who belongs in the political community, high and growing economic inequality, and excessive executive power. And you talk about how in none of the periods of democratic fragility in American history were all four threats present simultaneously, but now they are. So how are these threats co-conspiring right now to undermine American democracy in 2020? Well, the first thing to, to recognize is that each one of these threats by itself is something that um, can threaten democracy. You know, we know this because uh, we learn from people who study the rise and fall of democracies elsewhere outside the United States. It's not customarily the way people who study American politics are used to thinking about American politics. And there have been periods in which only one of the threats um, existed. And those periods were uh, moments when the country risked democratic backsliding, moving backward. So in the 1790s, which was a period of intense uh, political polarization, real division in, among, uh, in the public and among political elites into these sort of us and them camps, people were legitimately uh, worried that the, the uh, country, that the republic was going to fall apart, that the democratic experiment was going to sort of expire, and that the... Um, the country would move back to monarchy or some kind of uh, autocracy. Um, and again, in the 19, in the 20th century, when the three of the threats were at relatively low levels, but the growth of executive power proceeded quite dramatically over the course of the century, there were moments when democracy was fragile. What we found when we surveyed these periods of history is that it's really combinations of the threats that are especially um, dangerous. So that in the um, 1850s, for example, you saw um, the return of extreme political polarization combined with or overlay with conflict over what's really been the most vexing and explosive source of conflict in American politics, um, which is race and the status of African Americans and um, the continuation and spread of slavery. When those things are combined and when polarization is about race and about the status of enslaved people in the, in the political system, then the problem becomes that much more acute. 
again, in the 1890s, you see this combination of threats. You see, you know, conflict over economics with rising economic inequality during the Gilded Age. Once again, conflict over race as uh, the white uh, supremacist South and the Democrats in the South try to uh, sort of overcome the democratization movement of Reconstruction. And on top of that, again, intense political polarization. It's the combination of threats that's really dangerous. Um, and as you say, today, for the first time, we see all four of these threats um, at one time, which suggests to us that this is a particularly challenging moment. So, well, one of the things I think a lot of people are trying to wrap their heads around is whether or not something like this was inevitable. That it, that is a structural problem. It's rooted in the the founding of the nation. It's rooted in the Constitution. It's rooted. I mean, even the framers tried to well, some of them want to minimize factionalism and oppose political parties, and yet it wasn't long before they'd formed. So I wonder to what extent this was baked into America from the founding of the Republic. Uh, I I think it's probably an overstatement to say that this was baked into the United States specifically from the founding of the Republic. The United States has some, you know, deep and longstanding specific challenges, particularly over race. But uh, one of the things we learned from looking at democracy outside the United States is that these challenges and these threats are in a sense endemic to all dem democratic systems, polarization and factionalism. Um, as the framers learned as soon as they started to run the government um, in the 1790s was, you know, is sort of how democracy works. And that doesn't necessarily need to be a dangerous thing for democracy. Democracies thrive on and depend on difference and disagreement and, and you know, spirited debate about policy, about the future of the country, um, and so on and so forth. But when that kind of debate or factionalism or uh, polarization becomes this sort of game of mutual, uh, of, of mortal combat, of mm. mutual distrust of us and them, then it can be, can be dangerous. And it's a fine line between um, what's, uh, you know, the right amount of polarization and what's too much polarization or polarization in a form that can be really destructive. So it's not, it's, I wouldn't say that these are necessarily distinctive to the United States. You know, these are characteristics of other democratic systems as well. Um, other democrat democracies have gone through these sorts of challenges. You know, what we tried to uncover in the book is, is the way these different threats have kind of ebbed and flowed over the course of time and combined and recombined in different ways. Taking up that point, one of the of the things I found fascinating about the book and and helpful, not just generally but also in understanding the moment, is that you can see as you trace the history uh, where these things are coming from and where they end up. But when you look at it through the prism of the moment, you're reminded that the problems predate President Trump, right? And there's there's a there's a tendency right now to look at President Trump and the Trump administration to say all of America's problems are here, they started here, when very clearly they preceded the, this administration. And so, for instance, you know, the, the Economist Democracy Index downgraded the U.S. democracy recently, but it was based on data prior to Trump. That would suggest that, in fact, Trump is the 
consequence as much as the cause. So I'm curious at how some or all of these threats that you write about help us make sense of the rise of Trump and, and of Trumpism. Well, I think you're exactly right to identify Trump as more consequence than cause. You know, if you look at, you can look at each of the threats and identify over the last few decades how they've all been growing. So uh, polarization, the, the middle into the late 20th century was a period in the United States of relatively low polarization. You know, parties were somewhat, the two parties were somewhat heterogeneous um, within themselves. That is, you know, there were liberal and conservative Democrats and more liberal and conservative Republicans. So legislating, policy-making coalitions tended to be bipartisan. Um, a lot of that was true because the Democratic Party contained within it both white supremacists in the South and um, African-Americans and the Northern uh, working class. So it was a pretty unstable coalition to begin with. Since the 1970s, the parties have begun to sort themselves out um, with white voters in the South moving to the Republican Party, so to creating a much more homogeneous, um, unified, ideologically, Republican Party. Um, the same thing's been happening more or less with the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is increasingly becoming a party of a multicultural party, a multiracial party. And so you get you know, two separate Non -over, really non-overlapping parties. So you've seen that dynamic growing since the 1970s or so. At the same time, um, that party division has increasingly overlapped with beliefs about uh, race and racial equality, um, especially in the last 10 years or so. The Republicans and Democrats have really sorted themselves out so that the Republican Party is a much whiter party than the Democratic Party, and white Republicans are much more likely to, to believe in, in racial resentment and in, in to hold beliefs about race politics that are on the conservative end of the spectrum, much more so than Democratic voters. So the parties are not only separating themselves out, but aligning themselves on this racial divide. Since the, also since the 1970s or 1980s, economic inequality has been on the rise tremendously in the United States. This is very well documented. Um, but more important is not just the rise of the fact of inequality, but the politics of inequality, particularly the, the fact that the wealthy, uh, wealthy Americans are increasingly involved in politics and organized in politics and willing to spend money to influence uh, political decision-making. And, and the wealthy in these kinds of situations are often so single-minded in pursuing their policy goals that they're willing to shortchange democracy mm. in order to, to get what they want. And then the fourth threat, executive aggrandizement, has been growing steadily throughout the 20th century, regardless of which party's in power. And that you know, growth of presidential power, which began in the middle, early and middle 20th century as the, as a way of sort of gaining control over a growing and increasingly sprawling government, picked up steam with the development of the national security state. And increasingly as polarization has gotten more acute, that leads to gridlock in Congress. And that increases the temptation for presidents to try and act unilaterally. So not only are all the threats growing, and they have been doing so for a couple of decades, but they sort of feed on each other. 
to create a sort of perfect storm of conditions that made the presidency and the Republican Party ripe for a candidate like Trump. Well, I want to pick up, well, there's a whole bunch of different directions I want to go. So I'm going to try to force myself to pick one and stick on it for a few minutes. Let's pick up on Congress and 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 the executive uh, in policy. So a few years ago, you know, a couple of political scientists, Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page, wrote about how policy in the United States is unrepresentative. Elites tend to get what they want and everyone else tends to get left behind. There was some pushback on that paper about the way they did it. But I think the message looking from the 1970s to the Obama administration was largely that there, there are folks getting what they want and lots of folks not getting what they want. And you can guess who falls into which camp. I'm thinking about this since you mentioned wealthy, single-minded political contributors and movers and shakers. How, how does that contribute, if it does, to these crises? I mean, because presumably at some point, if people aren't getting what they want, uh, they're going to start to look at this system and say, what's the point? Where do we fit in? Yeah. Well, I mean, the interesting, one of the interesting observations about economic inequality and its impact on democracy is that um, the challenge is not necessarily because of the threat from below. Um, the challenge, as you point out, and as Page and Gillens have written about, comes about because the wealthy fear they fear the prospect of redistributive policies, um, and they'll band together and use their influence and use their resources to exert outsized influence on, on policymaking. And it's not just Gillens and Page. Other, um, other political scientists have, in a different way, made the same observation. Larry Bartels has been writing about this for quite a while. Um, a recent uh, terrific new book by um, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson has pointed out that the Republican Party has you know, pursued an agenda um, for the last several decades that's really focused on um, advantages for a very small, very wealthy sector of the income distribution. You know, big tax cuts, massive deregulation, very business friendly of a certain business of a certain kind, very business friendly um, agenda that doesn't necessarily play toward the majority. Mm. So there's a lot of evidence that the wealthy will use their, uh, deploy their resources to, um, you know, in a sense, distort democratic policymaking and to undermine democratic accountability. You know, and again, when that threat, which is a challenge in and of itself, is combined with, you know, the opportunity to divide the population along uh, on issues like race or immigration, that becomes an, you know, and in a situation where the party system is highly polarized. Again, it's the combination of the sort of overlay of, of a series of threats that makes this especially uh, challenging. Well, that's right. That, that, that seems to be, I mean, it's a sharknado of crises. I mean, I'll mention that, again, reading the book is, from my perspective as a political theorist and as someone who pays close attention to American and Canadian politics, is that one of the things that, that you were able to do is pick up on all of the concerns and considerations that are swirling at once. And, I, and I'll mention the name of the book again, Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. That recurring bit seems to be critical. And it, it made me think of another book, How Democracies Die, uh, by Ziblatt and Levitsky. And, and they write about the importance of elected officials, uh, representatives, and elites more generally 
exercising forbearance, a form of restraint. There are things you can do. You can maybe even get away with doing them, but you shouldn't do them because when you do, everybody ends up worse off. Uh, and I'm wondering where, where forbearance fits into your analysis, because thinking back from, from Trump backwards, even the Nixon administration, one of the America's great crises showed some forbearance to some extent, which is saying something, I guess, now, uh, you know, as did Al Gore in 2000 with a contested election. So I'm wondering from, from this the vantage point of 2020, looking back and looking forward, how, how that idea of forbearance fits into your analysis. Well, I think what we're trying to chronicle is a set of what you might call underlying conditions that mm. make that kind of norm breaking of the kind that Levitsky and Ziblatt write about more likely or more tempting or, or create more opportunities. So in a moment like today, you know, when the country is so divided into these teams and what's most important is beating the other team, it becomes more plausible or more reasonable for one side or the other, in this case, one side really, to relax forbearance or to sort of um, not exercise mutual toleration, which is the other norm that Levitsky and Ziblatt um, write about in their book. You know, and you're right that in, in the 1970s, in the Watergate crisis, President Nixon was similarly trying to use the executive branch uh, apparatus and use the power of the presidency to pursue his own uh, mostly political goals. And ultimately, he was brought down by um, uh, sort of this combined efforts of bipartisan or sort of bipartisan coalition in Congress. You know, enough Republicans went along with the idea of removing him from office that eventually his position became untenable. But also the Department of Justice and judges mm -hmm. and press, you know, a whole bunch of actors in the system played their roles in a constitutionally faithful sort of way. So, but, but to me, the question is, is that an act of forbearance or were the, were the conditions, the underlying mm. political conditions different enough that they had run out of options? And the, the contrast with between then and now is really the only threat that was present in a really con con concerted way in the 1970s was executive power. Polarization was relatively low. Conflict over race, at least partisan conflict over race, had abated, was, was not yet on the rise the way it has been subsequently. And economic inequality was still relatively low. We were at the end of this 30, 40 years of tremendous prosperity and a flattening of the, of the or a con compression of, the, of, of inequality. So you didn't have this condition of overlapping threats Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think, made the situation somewhat less dangerous and changed the calculations of um, Nixon's Republican allies. Um, but I will point out that it was not until the very, very, very end, literally the last few days before he resigned, that Republicans abandoned him. Right. I, I, right. And I, and I think, I mean, it makes me wonder if, if that might still be seen in, in the current context. Although when I was thinking of forbearance, I think I, I was thinking more along the lines of the Supreme Court says you can't hand over the tapes. Nixon hands over the tapes. Well, with a bit of an exception, but generally. <laughs> um, and, I, and I wonder if, uh, if in 2020 you've got the Supreme Court ordering Trump to do something if he does something like that, um, or, or whether or not at this point the 
the sort of executive aggrandizement as it's uh, come to pass with with everything else you've discussed just means that the president would rather just say no and live with the consequences than than obey the courts. Yeah, but I think that I think Nixon legitimately feared that if he didn't comply with the court or the court order with the Supreme Court order to hand over the tapes in July of 1974, for example, that the backlash would have come not just from Democrats, but from Republicans as well. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, yes, he was on the surface following a norm of compliance with the court order, you know, um, but he was also facing a political reality given the structural situation of the powers that were arrayed around him. So I think, it, I think you're right. It's much more plausible now that we might see a President Trump simply refuse to comply with a court order, but he would do that probably with some confidence that Republicans would back him up. Right, which speaks but, to the polarization yeah, exactly. crisis. Right? Exactly. Yes, that's right. And something that, I mean, as you sort of point out in the book, it's not as if those who thought up and wrote the Constitution in the late 18th century didn't envision this as a problem. It seems like they very specifically did envision something like this polarization as a problem and worked very hard to, to avoid it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that, you know, the founders didn't um, anticipate political parties and they didn't anticipate these kinds of factions that, um, you know, appeared immediately as soon as the same people were in elected office under the Constitution. Um, and again, but that speaks to the sort of nature of democratic politics and democratic governance, which is that, you know, these were the, the debate, the, the debates between, you know, Hamilton on the one side and Jefferson and Madison on the other side, for example, were, were genuine fundamental policy disagreements about the direction of the country, about what kind of economy we were going to build, about what kind of society was going to develop um, in the in the in the country. So it wasn't it didn't start out just as a, you know, family brawl, you know, and talk about forbearance. These guys used every tactic they could think of to, you know, make life difficult for the other side, including, um, you know, they set up their own newspapers and there were these newspaper wars in the 1790s that made the cable news wars today look <laughs> sort of like a you know polite garden party. <laughs> you know, it happened quite quite quickly and for legitimate democratic reasons, right? They disagreed about what the country how the country should be governed. So it's very hard to separate out that that aspect of democratic politics from the the problematic polarization that evolves at times yeah. over American history. I mean, you know, Fast forward now to the, to the middle of the 20th century, the American Political Science Association put out a report in 1950 that basically said there wasn't enough polarization in the United States. This was the period when you know people right. complained that Democrats and Republicans really weren't that different from each other and that there wasn't really any space between them and that the, the political scientists who thought about this at the time worried that that kind of situation um, didn't create enough room, enough accountability, right? So, you know, these things come and go. It's not necessarily the case that when you have disagreement in a political system, in a democratic political system, that it's going to divide the country and divide 
elected officials into these into these war camps. It, it's a bit of a you know it's interesting to think back to the that the APSA statement 1950 and it's a bit of a be careful what you wish for moment. I, I think a little bit of late, a few years later, William F. Buckley, from whom the concept of this podcast was actually taken, firing line as it happens. Uh-huh. But um, even though we we don't share a politics, <laughs> we certainly share an appreciation for a long form talk. But you know, it was Buckley who was saying that Republicans are liberals and we've got to do something about it. I mean, he went so far as just, wow, well, I certainly thought even Eisenhower was and, and um, had his own concerns about Nixon, right? And, and it, you know, it, it seems to me like a big tipping point, or at least the beginning of a tipping point for that polarization is bound up in that Buckley era uh, of, of the sort of new conservatives and, and Barry Goldwater and, and a lot of them that um, they sort of got what they wanted to some extent, but look what it's cost. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, um, you know, that that speaks to another important point about polarization. We often sort of colloquially think about polarization as in ideological terms. Um, and we, just the last few minutes of the discussion have sort of uh, been thinking about it that way. You know, people disagree and sometimes they disagree a little and sometimes they disagree a lot and are really far apart. That's one meaning of polarization. But polarization also has this strategic meaning. And, and that kind of polarization, the kind of polarization that we're seeing today and that's cropped up periodically in American history, is driven as much by these strategic considerations. So when politics is very closely fought, when the parties are, are really even, um, and when in any election either side could realistically win, then you know, strategically, it makes sense for each party to really try hard to distinguish itself from the other party, right? Um, and that's more or less been the case in the United States for the last roughly 40 years, since about 1980. In every federal election, the House, the Senate, and the presidency have really mostly legitimately, honestly been up for stake, up, up for grabs. Um, whereas for the preceding 50 years or so, the Democrats were such a dominant minority, majority most of the time that uh, strategically the sort of incentives for the two parties were different. But when the parties are so close together, not ideologically, but in terms of competitiveness, then all the incentives are for them to create this sense of really sharp disagreements between them. That's what, um, I mean, you're right that you know, that's what Buckley was after sort of on the on the intellectual plane in the 1950s and into the 60s. That's what Goldwater represented when he was nominated in uh, 1964. And that, as we write about in the book, that's what Newt Gingrich was up to in the 1980s mm. when he saw, you know, Republicans in this perpetual minority in the House of Representatives um, and said, we need to really shake things up and we need to create, rather than sort of being the junior partner whose job is to accommodate the New Deal and nudge it as far to the right as we can, our job is to throw bombs and make waves and make noise um, and create this, you know, legitimate political alternative. That's where, you know, I think you're right to take it back to Buckley and, and beyond, but that's where we locate the real beginnings of, of contemporary partisan polarization was in this sort of strategic 
you know, almost uh, um, institutional terrorism that that uh, that Newt Gingrich and his band engaged in in the 1980s. Well, and, and taking that, the rise of that polarization, also the decline of, of forbearance and the the competitiveness, and then using that to look at elections. I mean, you write about how free and fair elections are central to democracy. I don't think anybody would take issue with that. Uh, we're recording this at the end of August. It will air a little bit later. We've just seen the Trump administration's assault on the Postal Service and its infrastructure, the president's refusal to say whether he'll recognize and respect the 2020 election results, gerrymandering, which isn't a new problem, but it's persistent, voter suppression, and a long history of dirty tricks. When I was reading the book, I kept asking myself the question of, under these conditions, can you have a free and fair election in 2020? And I'm genuinely curious whether or not you think you can and under what conditions that is that might be possible. God, I hope so. Yeah, uh, yeah me too. Yeah. But that, that, is, that is a huge question, um, you know, and for all the reasons that you, uh, that you suggest. You know, I think we can look at the historical pattern and learn that in the presence of multiple threats, one of the things we learn is that the integrity of elections is really at risk. Um, and in the stories we tell, it's, it's, this is most apparent in the 1850s leading up to the Civil War in the 1890s. We write a, a little bit about Kansas in the 1850, the territory of Kansas, which was sort of one of the harbingers of violent conflict over slavery in the 1850s before the Civil War. And one of the things that happened repeatedly in Kansas was elections that were marred by fraud, by intimidation, by violence. And so that it became really next to impossible for the territory of Kansas to sort of establish a sound, functioning, universally recognized democratic decision-making system because it was so divided, um, both in partisan terms and in particular over the question of slavery, whether Kansas were it to be, when it was admitted as a state to the union, um, whether it would be admitted as a slave state or as a free state. So that level of conflict, um, that kind of conflict and these overlapping threats, you know, created a situation in which elections were seen as a, a really as a free-for-all and as a sort of existential conflicts in which losing was, um, you know, not just a, uh, a temporary setback and you'd come back and win next time, which is kind of how we expect democracy to work. I and mean, it's what in the nature of democracy that sometimes you win and sometimes you lose and today's losers can become tomorrow's winners. But that's not how elections were fought in, in that moment of crisis in Kansas. Again, in the 1890s, we tell a story about elections in North Carolina in 1898, where uh, this was at, at after decades of reconstruction in which African-Americans in the South had gained political rights and were voting and being elected to office at fairly high rates. And there was an election in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898 that resulted in the, apparently in the re-election of a multiracial fusion ticket between the Republicans and the populists that was essentially overthrown by a violent coup d'etat orchestrated by white white supremacist Democrats who were um, uh, who felt that um, 
you know, the outcome of the election undermined their very existence um, or was a threat to their, their understanding of what politics in North Carolina should be. So, you know, this is a really, this is a real question. Um, and and the not not just a sort of you know alarmist notion that we might not be able to have uh, have a fair election. You know I think the best we can hope for is a decisive victory uh, one way or the other, mm. because the the scenario that I find most troubling is a law lo- is a long drawn out counting process when with two sides dug in. Um, you alluded to 2000 before, you know, some kind of replay of that, but even on a larger scale, where the outcome is uncertain, one side or the other, or both sides are claiming victory, and it becomes very hard to get to the truth and sort out a decisive result. Because Al Gore in 2000 and Donald Trump in 2020 are very different too, right? I mean, the, cool. the players make a difference. Yeah, yeah. No, but I also think the kind of the kind of behavior that Trump is engaging in around just rhetoric about the election would not have seemed acceptable from either side in 2000. You know, there's no question that the Republicans in 2000 um, who were working toward a Bush victory were playing what we would think of as constitutional hardball. I mean, they were using the rules very deftly and effectively to their advantage, Um, but they weren't, you know, trumpeting it in the sort of, terms that Trump does. Um, so the, the, even there, the situations are a little bit different. It's just shocking to me. I mean, I, I don't spend a lot of time singing the praises of George W. Bush. That won't surprise anybody. But I, I can't imagine him saying, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to recognize the result of the 2000 or 2004 election. And maybe, you know, I can't imagine him saying in 2004, maybe we should add another four years to this when we're all done do it again right yeah no yeah. <laughs> right exactly. I mean, even you know which shows um, you how quickly that slid that slid in just a short period of time right um, i mean trump did that even you know after the 2016 election about an election that he won <laughs> you know in a sense the, the gloves are off on this kind of behavior and then and then on top of that trump finds a way to make make the situation worse at every turn but again this is not just a function of or a consequence of trump being trump Trump yeah. is in this position because there's a set of conditions that, that put him there. Well, we're closing in on time, so we, we should observe a, a classic tradition among political scientists, which is we've covered problems for 40 minutes, so we should now give solutions five. Uh, which is a, uh, That's about the right ratio, I think. Yeah, I think so. For my last question, I, I genuinely do want to dig into the looking forward and, and thinking about solutions because this is something... You talk about in the book, you talk about the four threats, the dangerous convergence, but also, okay, what happens now? How do we move forward? So, I mean, how does the United States, assuming it can, ultimately manage and, and solve the confluence of these four crises? What, is, what does that look like starting now and moving into the next decade, two decades, three decades? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that we can think about there. One is... Um, um, and this is looking backward again for just a moment. One of the really sobering things that we uh, discovered when we put these episodes next to each other is that there's a recurring pattern of resolution of these crises that on the surface preserve democracy or at least preserve democracy for a certain set of Americans, but 
achieves that resolution by um, rolling back rights for particularly for black Americans mm -hmm. um, or for at least leaving in place structures of racial inequality. So that's been a that's been a particular challenge of how to create a truly multiracial, diverse, equal democracy. Uh, you know, I think trying to deliberately roll back these threats is a very tall order. But we do identify what we call four pillars of democracy, four things that have to happen um, or have to be in place in order for democracy to work. Um, these are free and fair elections, which we've just talked a little bit about. Um, the rule of law, the idea that the law applies equally to everyone and that being in a position of power doesn't allow you to evade the law. The idea of a legitimate opposition, the, that, that is the idea that you know you and I can disagree about something without being enemies or be opponents in an election without being enemies. And then finally, what we call the integrity of rights, the protection and equality of the rights that are necessary to make democracy work, civil liberties, civil rights, voting rights in particular. And I think if there's something that people take out of the book We'd like it to be that, that, that we want people to focus on these things and to jealously protect them and to think about how well, what's happening or how the choices that are in front of us might affect those things. In addition to, you know, it's, it's, ordin it's normal for us to think about when confronted with a decision, a political decision or a policy decision or a choice, you know, it's natural for us to think about, well, how is this going to help me or how is this going to help my pocketbook or my party or my group. Um, and to some extent, that's how democracy works. But I think if, on, if we need to make democracy itself a priority, and there I take some comfort in the fact that Americans by and large support these things. Americans support democratic values. In, in surveys, people support the idea of free and fair elections. People want there to be uh, the rule of law. People want to preserve rights. And I think just reminding people that these are important values in and of themselves and trying to find a way to use the current moment to uphold them is important. And it's probably worth reminding people that as much as we hear about polarization in the United States, we hear about toxic partisanship, partisanship as identity. You mentioned Bartels. I mean, you know, one of the um, Democracy for Realists is another great book, another uh, mm -hmm text I recommend for trying to understand this stuff. Um, but it isn't as if this is 99% or 100% of Americans that's, that are doing all of the damage, that, that it really isn't the entire population. There, there's a, you know, there is obviously a critical mass of people who are making a mess of things, but it isn't like every single American is a, a toxic partisan in the bag for the blue side or the red side. No, that's true, but it does feed on itself. And the more there's toxic partisanship or negative partisanship on one side, the more it sort of arises on the other side. I mean, one of the one of the commonly cited pieces of data that we mentioned in the book is a survey that was done in the 1960s, asking people, um, you know, would you be upset if your son or daughter married a person of the opposite political party? And in the 1960s, most people didn't care. Um, when that question was asked again in a survey a few years ago, a much higher percentage of people said, yes, I would be upset if my child you know, brought home a partner of the opposite party. 
Right. Um, that suggests, and this is this is consistent with Bartels, that that partisanship has become a part of our social identity, and the you know the the consequences of that uh, is what one of the thing one of one of the things that's playing out is the consequences of that kind of partisan sorting. Well, I, I mean, unfortunately, that brings us to time. I, I could talk about this for a long time, but instead, what I'm going to do is recommend the book once more four threats the recurring crises of american democracy it, it was a, a, an utter pleasure well a, a jarring pleasure but a pleasure nonetheless to to read and i want to thank you uh, dr robert lieberman and of course also um your co-author dr suzanne mentler but uh thanks especially to you for for joining me today thanks so much for having me and uh, of course as always thanks to my producer uh, mira ahmad and to Luke Gilmore and to our editor who make this possible, but also make the, the experience just better for everyone and make me sound far more coherent than I am uh, in actuality. So that 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 illusion is appreciated. And to everyone who, uh, who's listening and continues to listen as we try to figure everything out, including the run up to November 2020 and what happens next. So uh, once again, a big thanks uh, to you, Dr. Lieberman, and to everyone listening. And we'll catch up with you again in a couple of weeks. 